Uh, so we're learning Parashat Vayetzei, and as I've been trying, because we're always one week, um, quote-unquote, behind, uh, we're reviewing the previous week's parasha uh, as it stands now. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things I've been doing, trying to do with this series, is to focus on, as I mentioned, uh, elements of the parasha that are given less attention, typically, in the study of the parasha, I, uh, it's a little bit more challenging to do that in Parashat Vayetze simply because most of the story, one of the things that you notice about Parashat Vayetze, which is unique among parashiot, is that the entire story from beginning to end is actually one paragraph. And what I mean by paragraph is that most uh, parashiot, let's say Parashat Bereshit, Noach, Lech Lecha, has paragraphs. So if you look in the Sefer Torah, you will see that there are spaces and indentation and it shows that there is something new, uh, that there's something new beginning. There's different kinds of parashiot. There's something called parashat petucha. There's something called parashat setuma. Depending on the extent to which, uh, the extent to which the upcoming content relates to the content that uh, preceded it. But you have a, um, you do have a, uh, uh, you know, paragraphs and, a, and break up Along the way, it's now one continuous narrative or entity. And a lot of times you can learn things about stories. You can, you can, um, uh, you can gain insight and you can discover clues about the meaning of different mitzvot or of different episodes in the Torah from the uh, fact that they are, let's say, found in a single paragraph or they're found in different paragraphs. This g- gives us some sense of whether they're meant to be connected to one another or not. So, um, so with that in mind, when we look at Parashat Vayetzein, we see that the entire parasha is one continuous paragraph, if you will, meaning that there are no spaces in between. That gives us the sense that it's all one story and it's a little bit more of a challenge to identify units within Parashat Vayetzei because it seems to be presented to us as one seamless unit. Now we can understand why that is. And, and, and for that, and, and there's also the, um, there's also the difficulty remembering what we talked about last year, which I, I don't remember which, uh, which element of the parasha we focused on last year when we learned it. So I apologize if we're reviewing or repeating anything that we touched upon last year, but I don't think I will be. The, um, the, the key uh, context maybe for the parasha is to remember that Yaakov has now been um, sent out from, uh, from his home and as a result of being sent out of his home he is uh, now going to he now finds himself uh, in a very difficult predicament a very difficult situation he needs to put this departure from home in the context of his understanding of his divine mission. And the, it would be logical for Yaakov to assume that he's now excluded from the divine plan because we know, for instance, that, yeah, that Avraham Avinu had two sons. One of them was Yishmael and one was Yitzchak. And in sending away Yishmael, he demonstrated that Yitzchak would be his heir apparent and would be the one to continue the legacy of his uh, mission of spreading awareness of God in the world, that this was going to be passed to Yitzchak and not to Yishmael. And similarly, Yaakov may have come to the conclusion that the fact that he was being sent away meant that he was becoming a secondary character. He was being excluded from the main narrative of the story. I, I like to use... Uh, as a uh, kind of a, uh, an analogy to this, whenever we talk about Parashat Vayetzei, to the movies where you'll have subplots and you have the main plot. And a lot of what goes on in the subplots might not even be shown uh, on the screen, but might sort of be happening in the background of the main story and, uh, and, and come up along the way in the middle of the story in different ways is tied in to the main plot line of the story, but is not the primary focus of the story. And so Yaakov Avinu has to, has to be grappling right now with the question of whether he has just become a, uh, an extra in the story or whether he is still a main character in the story as he, we assume that uh, he was intended to be. Because now that he's been kicked out of home like Ishmael was, I mean, we know that he wasn't really kicked out, but he may be experiencing it as being kicked out, not really understanding how it's possible for him to 
continue the work of his father and his grandfather not being in Eretz Israel and obviously ceding um, the uh, primacy and the, 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 the dominance uh, to Esav will now be the main, the only son of Yitzchak and Rivkat to be around and be regarded by most people, we assume, as the, uh, uh, the, the person who is expected to take over uh, for the next generation because Yaakov is not even there. So Yaakov has every reason to believe that he, has the, he is the rejected son. He is the son who is being excluded. He is the son that is now a subplot instead of the main plot. And that would seem to be the reason why he has the dream in the very beginning of the Sulam Mutzav Arza. He has the dream of the uh, of the what's called in English Jacob's ladder of the the ladder that reaches from the earth to the heavens, and that demonstrates that everything that happens below is coordinated from above, and that this experience of being excluded or being exiled is not a deviation, it's not an exclusion from God's plan, but it's actually part of God's plan. And it, the Midrash describes Malachim, Olim Virudim, that the angels that are going up the ladder are the angels of Eretz Yisrael, who are taking leave of Yaakov, and the Malachim of, that are coming down the ladder after them are the Malachim of Chutzaretz, of the diaspora that are coming to escort Yaakov. <coughs> and similarly, at the end of the story, and this is sort of the bookends of the Parashat Vayetzeh, at the end of the story, when he's coming back from his time with Lavan, he sees again uh, a, a uh, group or a camp of angels, and he says, Machane He sees Malachi Elohim, he sees angels of God, and he says, this is a camp of God, a divine camp, and he calls it Machanaim, the double camp. And, uh, and there we, the, the Midrash again comments that this is the angels of Eretz Yisrael once again welcoming Yaakov Avinu back to the Holy Land. So what, what is the concept? Seemingly what the Midrash is trying to express is that everything that Yaakov experiences is part of the divine plan. It's just that sometimes you need to take a detour in life in order to get back on the main road. Can't stay on the main road all the time. And so just because Yaakov is leaving what would seem to be the primary stage for Jewish history, which is Eretz Israel, that doesn't mean he's excluded from the history of the Jewish people or the destiny or, or the mission of the Jewish people. That just means he's taking a detour and he has to get back on the road. And so the malachim that are different are different because the process he needs to go through in returning to actually the homeland or, or the home territory of Abraham, his grandfather, and making uh, another departure from there and return to Eretz Yisrael, this whole process is part of his uh, personal growth that he has to experience. So it's a different trajectory. In other words, it's preparatory for him coming back to Eretz Yisrael ultimately and becoming the third of the patriarchs. But it's not, it's not an exclusionary leaving, but it's a preparatory leaving. He needs to leave in order to return. He needs to go through a process of um, refinement and, and a, a process of maturity in order to reassume uh, his role as the, in, as the heir to the legacy of Yitzchak and Abraham before him. And so that's the message, I believe, of the Malachim uh, in the simple meaning of the text. is the message of the Malachim that, that, uh, that Yaakov sees when he's leaving home, going up and down the ladder, and he's reassured by Hashem that he's going to be taken care of and he has no re- to, reason to worry and that he will one day return home. And the Malachim that, that greet him upon his eventual return to Eretz Yisrael. These seem to all be emphasizing the point that what seems to be a detour, uh, I'm sorry, what seems to be a departure from the program is really a detour and a return to the initial program. But now Yaakov is the um, new and improved version of himself prepared to take on the next set of challenges uh, to become the person that he needs to be to establish uh, the nation of Israel or at least the family that will be the foundation of the nation of Israel. So Yaakov is, and, and so for that reason, um, uh, the, uh, uh, we, we can all, almost see Parashat Vayetzeh as being in, in parentheses. In other words, it is in a way a deviation from the main story that was taking place at the home of Yitzchak and Rivka. In that way, it's kind of like a, a sidebar, it would seem. But the Torah takes the sidebar as a main point. This developmental experience of Yaakov is very critical and puts it in parentheses of angels on either side, as if to say that this was a divinely guided uh, process of development uh, that was 
engineered to bring Yaakov to the point he needed to be to achieve his uh, objective as the third of the Avot, of the patriarchs. Now, the, um, the, the aspect of the story, that being said, the aspect of the story, that I always, I've been trying to identify aspects of the story that are unsung aspects, that are elements of the, uh, of the narrative that we frequently ignore or set aside. We, we don't give them uh, much time. I thought that what I would focus on, and again, it is a, uh, it is, uh, the entire story is one long paragraph. So doing this is different than, than our, our usual procedure because normally I would identify something in the text that is actually set off as a separate unit and, and, and focus on that. Here I'm kind of creating a unit in a way. He comes to Artsab uh, Nekedem. He comes to the area where he's going to eventually meet Rachel, as we know. Um, this is in uh, this is chapter twenty nine of Brayshit. If you have the book in front of you, if you have a chumash, it's also the second aliyah of the parasha. He comes to a well, and he sees three flocks of sheep that are uh, around this, that are crouching around this well. Because it was from this well that the flocks would be watered, would be given drink. And there was a large stone on top of the well. And all of the various flocks of sheep would gather together. And then they would roll the stone off of the top of the well. And then they would give drink to the sheep. And then they would return the rock to its proper place on top of the, uh, on top of the well. Now, this is very interesting because one must wonder why is this significant in the story? In other words, one could notice, and I, I think it is, uh, it, there are no accidents in the Torah and there's nothing that is, um, that's insignificant, that we just read about an even, we read about an, a, uh, a stone that Yaakov slept upon in the night and, and, uh, and then he took a stone and he set it up and he said he made it as a... Um, a place of dedication and he said that this place is, I'm going to come back here and I'm going to make a house of God if Hashem fulfills his promise that this detour that this departure is really a detour and that I do return home and I'm able to uh, uh, to return to my family and he's with me and I'm able to once again fulfill my destiny as one of the Avot then I will make this a house of God all that he says there near the uh, near, is also said with rocks he, he, he slept on the rock he set up a rock that he was going to come back to and, uh, and now he sees a rock on top of the well. I doubt that there is a, an accident here, the emphasis on rocks, but it seems to be that each of these rocks symbolizes, represents something about Yaakov Avinu and um, is key to showing that he is developing in each one of these stages um, and that this is all coordinated divinely uh, planned out. In fact, at the end of the story with Lavan, the, uh, the covenant that he makes with Lavan is made over a pile of rocks. So again, rocks are assuming a very significant role here um, in, in, his, in his journey. And I'm not sure if the meaning of rock has any intrinsic significance, but what does seem to be certain from the perspective of the storytelling is that by constantly referring to rocks here, it, there's definitely a, an, a, 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 uh, a message that this is all one continuous process, that each one of these stages is linked to the next. In any case, he sees the rock here and he says to the people, Do you, where are you from? And they say they're from Haran. And he says, do you know Lavan? And they say, yes, we know him. Now, this on the surface would seem to be an innocuous statement and it would seem to be a, uh, a statement not of much, not much information. Yeah, we know it, but uh, they don't say much else than, yeah, we know him, which kind of gives us pause and makes us wonder why they are so cagey and why they don't have more to say about it. In other words, when someone asks you, do you know somebody uh, and, and they're a good person, you will typically say, yeah, he's a wonderful person. Of course, I know him. Do you know him? They don't say that. They just say, yes, we know him. And as if to say, we don't know, who, you know why you're looking for him and what, what your intention is. And, and it could be a bad intention. So therefore, we are distancing ourselves from him. In other words, there's a sense right away from the beginning that Lavan might not be everyone's favorite character. And I think he, that we, we definitely begin to agree with that judgment and that, uh, that assessment as the story unfolds. He said, is he okay? And they said, yes, and here is his daughter coming with the sheep because his daughters also work with the sheep. Now, this is the part of the story that, I, to me, really jumps out. And, and, and 
And I think that this is another one of those dialogues or another one of those details that the Torah seems to be spilling a lot of ink on, but uh, doesn't immediately seem to teach us anything. He asks them, it's still, there's a lot of day left, daytime left. It's definitely not time to go back home with the sheep. Why don't you already give these uh, sheep their drink and then go and pasture? Well, why are you standing around here at the well? They said, we can't. Until all of the flocks are collected. And they roll the rock off of the top of the well. And then we do it. Why is that significant? Why do we need to know that? Now, it could, you, you can read the story and say, well, that's because of what he's about to do. Because when he sees that Rachel comes and he's, she's approaching... In Pasuk Yud, in verse 10, it says, He immediately rolls, when he sees his cousin approaching, he immediately rolls the, um, the rock off of the well and gives water to the sheep of his cousin as a gesture of gratitude, perhaps, for what... Uh, what, you know, as a gesture of uh, goodwill, as a gesture of love, of, of kindness, of um, hopefully of, you know, a, a friendship, whatever it might be, of uh, f- a familial uh, connection. He wanted to, uh, to do this favor for, um, uh, for his cousin. Now, that in and of itself, we can understand because in the past, we know that when, when uh, Eliezer came, in order to make the shiduch, in order to, or when the servant of Avram had came to make the shiduch between Rivka and uh, and Yitzchak, of course, Lavan treated him to great hospitality, and perhaps we could interpret this as a kind of a uh, paying back the favor and showing a similar spirit of hospitality and kindness back. Whatever it may be, the point is that, and and that would be supported by the text because the text says that he wanted to give drink to the sheep of Lavan, the brother of his mother. In other words, just like his uncle had taken care of uh, his mother and had taken care of his father's representative, the servant of Abraham who came to arrange the wedding for his father, uh, he wanted to pay it back. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to show a similar kindness back. Whatever the case may be, the point is that it's very interesting that the Torah spends time describing, first of all, Yaakov's questioning of the practices of the shepherds in Levanstown, which seems unusual. I mean, why is he questioning? They want to take a break and sit around the well and wait for everybody to gather before they, uh, before they uh, give water to the sheep or not. Why is that so significant that Yaakov has to comment on that? Number one. And number two, that he ends up getting up and rolling the, the uh, rock even after they just told him that they don't do that. That's not the practice that they follow. Um, they wait until everybody gathers before rolling the stone. So at first you might think it's because it's so heavy, but uh, obviously not. Some people might interpret the story as meaning, yeah, it was so heavy that they needed everybody to roll the rock off. And then it turns out that Yaakov is like Superman and he's able to roll, roll the rock off. Some people read the, the, the text that way, that even though it was an extremely heavy rock, he was so inspired by his, uh, his desire to do this chesed that he went and he moved the rock that would normally be moved by multiple men on, on his own. That's one way of reading it, but I think that the real uh, simple meaning of the text is that there was a convention that they waited for people to gather together before removing the rock. It wasn't that it was physically impossible to move it. And Yaakov broke the convention. And we see that Yaakov is not necessarily an observer of conventions. And it can be problematic in some, in some settings and uh, advantageous in others. But he, he, he ignores the convention and he rolls the rock off of the well. But his questioning of their practice is very interesting because what does it matter to him whether they are wasting their time or not, sitting around the well for everybody to gather together. What we see from the fact that Yaakov is able to move the rock, and I'm taking it in its simple sense. I'm not taking it that he was a superman and had um, extra, uh, you know, extra strength and was capable of moving something that other people weren't capable of. I'm taking the simple meaning that it was a convention that they didn't move the rock, not that it was physically impossible to move the rock. And therefore, what Yaakov did here was he ignored the convention. Okay, but it's telling us something about the society that the people had this convention, this assumption, this, 
this agreement that they would not move the rock until everybody was together. It wasn't out of necessity. It wasn't because it was impossible to move the rock. It was because they decided not to move the rock. So really, if they were being very practical, each person could move the rock, give water to his sheep, go back to the pasture, and let the next person come whenever they came. They didn't have to wait for each other. But no, they decided to wait for each other. Now, that on the surface seems like an insignificant detail. But I think that one of the aspects of the story that to me is an aspect that had over the years, as I review Parashat Vayetze in particular, has become more and more of, uh, to my mind at least, of a significant element of the story of Yaakov and Lavan is Yaakov's attitude towards work versus Lavan's attitude. And I think this is the beginning of, uh, of a glimmer of what the attitude, what the culture was like in the society in which Lavan lived, insofar as how they thought about work. And to contrast that with Yaakov. Now, how do I know to contrast that with Yaakov? We're going to see, I'm going to show you a couple more clues. That, and, and I think when we look back at this story, we can see that this story... And Yaakov's challenging of the people of Haran, hey, why are you guys sitting around? It's not the end of the day. Why are you sitting around? Why don't you go back and give water to your sheep and go? That this question actually is at the heart of everything that Yaakov is about and the contrast between him and Lavan. And why that's so significant. So moving up a little bit, so we know that, of course, Yaakov makes a deal with Lavan, or it would seem he made a deal, that he's going to work for seven years in order to marry Rachel. <clears throat> because he, uh, he's staying with Lavan. He explained, of course, to Lavan everything that's happened. And, of course, we also know that what does Lavan say, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's just important to note, that Lavan is a type of a person that you have to be very careful around because he is exceedingly precise with his language. And he says, now we all assume that, that Lavan tricked Yaakov, and uh, he did trick him. He gave him the wife that he didn't expect to get. He gave him Le'an instead of Rachel. However, it might seem on the surface that he straight out lied to Yaakov, but that's not actually true. If you read the text, Vayomer Lavan, when Yaakov requested the hand of Rachel in marriage, it says, Vayomer Lavan, Tov titiot halach, mititiot Better that I give her to you than somebody else. Shivai Madi, stay with me. Now, is that really an agreement to the marriage proposal of Yaakov? I think we, we always take it to be that um, because that's how we naturally read the story. But listen to his words again. Better I give her to you than somebody else. First of all, there is a kind of a backhanded compliment there. He's not saying that Yaakov is so great. He's saying, well... Better you than somebody else, I guess. Not that I would really want her to marry you, but I guess if it would have to be you or somebody else, I might as well take you. That seems like part of the backhanded compliment there. It's a little bit of a slight to Yaakov. But he also never said yes. He never said yes. He's making an observation. It would be better for me to give her to you than someone else. Stay with me. But there was never any explicit agreement between Lavan and Yaakov, even though Yaakov being a person of integrity and honesty, would have assumed that, ya- that Lavan would uh, meant what he thought he meant. Of course, it turns out that he did not. And again, when Yaakov protests, Lavan's answer is, Lo bimkomenu latet That's in verse 26. Lavan said, Such a thing is not done in our place to give the younger before the older. You are the one who is wrong. Just because I said that it would be better for me to give her to you than someone else doesn't mean I'm going to violate the conventions of our society and allow my younger daughter to be married for my older daughter. Of course I'm going to give you my older daughter first. And therefore I gave you the older daughter. In other words, Lavan shifts the blame to Yaakov and almost acts as if he is indignant and aghast that Yaakov would suggest that Rachel would get married before, ya- before Le'ah. That, that Rachel would get married before Le'ah. So the interesting thing is that he turns it around on Yaakov and makes Yaakov the bad guy. But there's also a little bit of an implicit, again, jab at Yaakov from Lavan. Because Lavan is saying, you remember, what Le- remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about Yaakov. And of course, Yaakov has recounted the whole story of why he escaped from home to Lavan. So yeah, Lavan is saying to Yaakov, 
I know what you did. You put yourself before your older brother and stole the firstborn position and stole the bracha. But lo yasech gechen bimkomenu. We don't do such things here to allow the young before the old. I know how you do, but that's not how we do here. We do things properly here. So again, there is a, as much as we perceive Lavan as the villain, he always has the ability to turn things around against Yaakov and to put Yaakov in a position of feeling vulnerable, feeling like the underdog, feeling like he has failed, feeling like he is the one who's to blame. And this goes all the way to the end when Yaakov protests about how hard he's worked and Lavan completely ignores the protests of Yaakov and the, uh, and, and the fact that Yaakov's been insulted by the accusations Lavan makes against him and takes control of the situation once again and, so to speak, puts Yaakov in his place. So Lavan is a master manipulator. If we thought that Yaakov was effective at manipulating his brother Esav and perhaps also his father, um, Lavan is the uh, master of all masters of manipulation and is able to outdo even Yaakov. So, the, um, so be that as it may, Yaakov and Lavan have this unusual relationship. Yaakov ends up with the wives Rachel and Leah. And we know that Yaakov works tirelessly, it would seem, and he's building his family. And as I mentioned, what I want to focus on is, ya- is what Yaakov teaches us in terms of work. Because we see that the first interaction he has with the people of Haran is to critique their, lazy, well, their perceived laziness. That they were now working so hard, they were sitting around when they could easily have given water to their sheep and moved on. Um, a little bit later on, we find another interaction between Yaakov and Lavan that I think is very telling. And that is after Yosef is finally born. So finally, Yaakov has a child from his beloved wife, his first choice of wife, which is Rachel. And it, and it says, et Yosef. It was after Yaakov, uh, after Rachel had Yosef. Let me go back to my land and my place. So you notice something very interesting. The word avoda. Yaakov says, give me my wives and my children. That I worked for you, for them, and I will go. Because you know it avodati asher avaticha. Notice that the word avoda appears again and again. My work that I've served you for so long. I've worked very hard and now I deserve to be able to go and to build my, my future back in my home. This is critical for the following reason. Look at what Lavan says in verse 27. Lavan. Lavan says to Yaakov, If I found favor in your eyes, which is a way of making a request of somebody, I used my occult arts to test. And Hashem has blessed me because of you. Now, what does that mean? Why is that significant? Why does the Torah emphasize this, this statement of Lavan? Why is it worded so strangely? Why doesn't Lavan just say, you know, I realize you're a very good worker and I want to keep you on. How can I reward you? Lavan doesn't say that. He says, Nichashti. I experimented with my magical arts, my occult arts, my superstitious methods of determining things. And I figured out that God blessed me because of you. In other words, you brought me good luck. That's what God is. That, that's what Lavan is saying to, uh, to uh, Yaakov. He says it in the terms of God, that Hashem blessed me because of you. But he doesn't connect it to what Yaakov connects it to. Yaakov says, I served you. I worked for this. I accomplished. And what does Lavan say? He says, I checked it out with my magical investigation and I realized God blessed me because of you. You brought me good luck. That's all. Now, to the person who's reading it quickly, there doesn't seem to be much significance to that change of language. But if you're reading very carefully, you realize that there's a huge difference between saying, Yaakov, you've worked very hard diligently and with discipline and with dedication, and I recognize you're a valued employee on one hand, versus saying that, Yaakov, you brought me good luck. You brought me good luck is in itself a discounting, really, of 
the significance of the work of Yaakov. So when Yaakov says, Et avodat, asher otcha, and et avodati asher avaticha, my work that I've worked for you, you see that Yaakov is emphasizing the action on his part, and the diligence, and the dedication, the devotion, the intensity of the work, whereas Lavan just sees it as an accidental thing. It's just a, it's just a circumstance, it's just a happenstance. That uh, I, I checked it out. I couldn't. In other words, what he's really saying is just like before when he refused to acknowledge the validity of the argument of Yaakov about the ethics of switching Le'an Rachel. Here he's again denying without really saying it outright. And again, you have to read the text very, very carefully because every word in the Torah is important and every turn of phrase is important. The fact that Yaakov is talking about avodah, talking about work, and Lavan is emphasizing the luck that's involved. You brought me luck. It has nothing to do with your work. In other words, he's saying there's no objective way that I would have been able to tell that you've done anything positive. It's just that I see that you showed up and I had good luck. That is the essence of basically robbing Yaakov of any merit for what he's done. There's no merit in Yaakov. It's just that accidentally he showed up and he brought good luck. And therefore I want to keep you around because you brought me good luck. And, and so what does, what does Lavan say? Set whatever payment you want and I'll give it. And of course we know, and, and again, notice the language and I think it's so important here. Vayomer Elav. Again, he says, and this is the second time he says these words, Atayadata. In verse Kavav, in verse 26, he says, You know my service that I've served you, my work. And here again he says, You know how I've worked for you. And how your, your livestock was with me. The very little that you had before I came has become many. Now that's very important. And Hashem has blessed you through my causality. And now when am I going to do also for myself? What is the difference in the language? When Yaakov speaks, he says, Avodati, he says, Avaticha, I served you, and how your cattle was with me, because the very little you had before is now much, it's now a lot. And Hashem blessed you, Liragli, through my agency, basically, it means. In other words, I was the one who brought about the Bracha. It's not circumstantial, it's not happenstance. It didn't just occur from some random, uh, uh, mystical, Conjunction of superstitious forces that you figured out with your nichush nichashti. I figured out that Hashem blessed me when you came, so it's a it's a special mazal. No, it's liragli. It's a, a, a result of my action. Liragli means as a result of my action. Okay, so that so he's saying, and that's why he says, and when am I going to do for my house? So he says, you need to see the causality in human action. Yaakov is saying that it's personal responsibility and the importance of hard work. Lavan sees things as magical and therefore he expects that things will come together with or without the diligence and the hard work and the effort that Yaakov puts into it. But Yaakov realizes that no. How does God bless a person? Through the exercise, through that person's exercise of intelligence and diligence and discipline, they are able to receive, to bring out and to receive the blessing of Hashem. It's through our action that the blessing of Hashem is revealed. It's otherwise just a potential until we bring it forth through our actions. And our action has to be with intensity. Okay? Hashem is rofecholi. He heals the sick. But how does his healing of the sick work? Because there are researchers working night and day to find vaccines for diseases. And through their diligent work, the intelligence that God implanted in them will helps them to discover things about the world God created that allowed diseases to be healed. And it's pretty amazing. But it's the diligence of those workers coupled with the fact that God gave them the opportunity to see certain things, to understand certain things, that leads to the success. It's not accidental. It's not random. The way that, ya, that Lavan would like it to seem. And now again, Vayomer ma'eten lach, 
And Lavan says, what can I give you? He doesn't acknowledge anything that Yaakov says. And that's the basic rule throughout their interactions. Not once does Lavan ever acknowledge anything that Yaakov says. Yaakov says, now notice this again. What does Lavan speak? He always speaks, what can I give you? Establish your payment and I'll give it. In other words, he's taking away the agency from Yaakov. He's saying, it's not that you will earn it, it's I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you as a gift for sticking around so I can have the good luck. Okay? Again, Yaakov says, Loti ten li meuma. Don't give me anything. Im If you just do this for me, I will go back to working with your sheep again. And what do you see that Yaakov does? It's really, if you think about that, the idea that Yaakov is trying to manifest here is the relationship between bracha and human action and, and human ingenuity and industry, that that's how God blesses us through our use of those tools that he's given us. Then you see that what does Yaakov make his reward? Just the fruit of his own labor. He says to, to Lavan, don't do anything for me. I will just take the fruits of my labor and will just select certain specimens of my of fruits of my labor that uh, the ones that I designate will be the ones that uh, I'm able to keep. And what does he do? We, we know that he goes through this whole process where he manipulates the situation so that the types of animals that are uh, the ones that he most, uh, you know, will be rewarded with or will, will come to him as payment are the ones that are produced in the greatest numbers and therefore enriches himself. And, and that, that's the system that they have. But as, as he says later on, Lavan switched it a million times or 10 times, he says, you know, uh, which again is the same as saying a million times, meaning many times. He switched it so many times because he, he kept trying to pull the rug out from under Yaakov. He, kept, he didn't realize that there was a connection between what Yaakov was doing and what was coming out. He thought, oh, it, it, there are a lot of speckled sheep that are being born. So I'm going to switch it to the brown ones. And the, oh, there's a lot of brown ones. I'm going to switch it to the ones that have the rings around their legs or whatever it was. He constantly switched it because he thought that it was deterministic and it was fatalistic. And that if he just, if he changed the, uh, what, what, what the agreed upon payment would be, so then Yaakov would never, uh, would, would not be enriched. But he didn't realize that Yaakov's action was leading to this outcome. Now, when we read the text, we can't really tell what exactly it was, how exactly it was that Yaakov's actions were leading to the uh, sheep being born in um, uh, certain colors or with certain features. What's clear is that after he had a certain critical number of those animals born, then he could mate them together and continue to breed them and make sure that he had a steady supply of them. And so what he did was he enriched himself through his own action and he wanted to keep the fruit of his own labors. Rather than be dependent upon the payment or the assent or the agreement of Lavan, his actions would speak for themselves. He says, my righteousness will answer for itself because, my, you know, because you'll see my payment in front of you. What, if anything doesn't look like what we agreed upon, if we say brown and I have the white ones, if we say speckled and I have the other one, then you'll know that I, I've stolen it from you. In other words, you'll see that everything I have is 100% legitimate um, uh, fruit of my labor. And so they agree upon this. And, and it turns out that Yaakov becomes very, very wealthy. And of course, Lavan and his, and his sons are very resentful because they've never had much. They've never been able to succeed much. And we can infer from Yaakov's interactions with Lavan why that is. Because they don't understand the relationship between the industry and ingenuity of a person and God's bracha. And this is what's so critical, I think, to the personality of Yaakov and perhaps make, you know, is one of the key lessons we learn from Yaakov. That Hashem grants blessing through the actions that we do. We are the agents of bringing about the potential of God's blessing in our lives. And it says, this is in verse 43, he became very, very, very wealthy. He had all servants and all kinds of flocks of animals. And what happens? Of course, the person who is a magical thinker, the person who doesn't recognize the relationship between diligence, hard work, sustained effort, intelligence, 
etc., perseverance and success, will say, Yaakov just took this from our father. He stole this from our father. From what belonged to our father, he made all of this. That kind of thinking is exactly the kind of thinking they've been locked in before. That somehow, either they were destined to be wealthy or they weren't. Either the circumstances, the magical circumstances would line up or they wouldn't. That there was no relationship between their action and the result. So they didn't see the relationship with Yaakov either. And they didn't recognize what value Yaakov brought or they denied it. If they did see it, they didn't want to accept it. And if we look back to the initial interaction that Yaakov had with the guys at the well, we can already see a glimmer of this idea back then. Because what does Yaakov say to them? Why are you guys sitting around here? Get up, give water to your sheep and go back to work. The day is not over. In other words, right from the beginning, the fact that they would sit around and they had this convention and they had this accepted practice and they had this, they had this deal that they were all going to wait for one another, even though it meant the loss of time and a loss of, uh, you know, and, and a certain type of a laziness and a certain type of a uh, lack of, um, of a, a dedication to work and, and a, uh, a certain type of a, a lack of efficiency, basically, we could say. That lack of efficiency was symptomatic of the society and why they weren't successful because they expected that prosperity would come from means beyond their action, not from their action, but from fate, from destiny, from God or God's blessing them um, and would not be directly related to their action. And what Yaakov was bringing to the table was that success is the outgrowth of one's actions. And so therefore, and then of course Yaakov has a vision where Hashem says, return to your home, it's time for you to go. And uh, he runs away. And, uh, but first he tells the, um, again, he tells his wives, and this is in verse 6 of chapter 31. That I worked for your father with all of my strength. And he tried to trick me. He would always change what the deal was. He constantly changed the deal. He would he tricked me. He changed the deal ten times. And God did not allow him to harm me. If he said that you'll get all the spotted ones, then all of the sheep would give birth to spotted ones. And if he said the ones with the rings around the, the ankles would be your... your uh, uh, reward, then they, then they would be, uh, they would all be born that way. Now the interesting thing is, he says Hashem was the one who saved all of the uh, the uh, cattle and gave it to me, or all of the sheep and gave it to me. But it wasn't Hashem; it was him because we saw that he manipulated it. They would be born a certain way, and yet he calls it Hashem. He says Hashem is the one, but he uses the word Elohim. What is Elohim? The Creator. It doesn't say Yud Kevavke. It doesn't say Hashem was beyond creation. It says Elohim. What does Elohim mean? the creator who made the world lawful and ordered and who determined that human beings who behave in certain ways, who, who devote, who, uh, who invest their energies uh, and, and their minds and their, their efforts into certain projects will succeed and will be able to extract the blessing of Hashem. And those who just sit back and wait for magic to happen will not. That person, that, that idea is what he's conveying to his uh, wives and what Lavan lacked. But that was the, the key to his success. He understood that what God had done was give him the tools and that when he saw the results and the fruits of his labor, that that was coming from God because God had made that possible by giving him the tools and the means to achieve that. And then he said that he had a dream where he saw uh, that Hashem showed him all of the, the, uh, the animals mating and, and giving birth to the animals that they were supposed to and so on and that Hashem... Uh, saw everything that was happening to him and told him to return home. But the, um, then Yaakov tries to run away. And we see at the very end again what happens when Yaakov and Lavan have their final, uh, uh, final uh, confrontation. Now, I'm not going to get into so much the, the issue of what the, uh, the, the closure, uh, if there is closure in the, in the end, you know, at, at the end of the story, and the fact that Yaakov loses his temper, which is an error 
on Yaakov's part. And there's also the very interesting story of the Trafim, the idols that Rachel stole from her father and why she did that. These are all very, very fascinating issues that need to be explored in Shurim in and of themselves. But I think that the key the, on the theme that we're talking about tonight is that Lavan is, of course, very upset that, um, that Yaakov has run away and, uh, and Yaakov is, um, you know, is uh, protesting that he's done nothing wrong. And Lavan is especially concerned about his idols and what's happened to them. And again, if we know the mentality of, Yaak- of Lavan, that he's a person of superstition and of a kind of a magical mentality, we can understand why he's so concerned with this. And Lavan goes looking for his idols everywhere. And of course, Yaakov then loses his temper. Now, putting aside for a second the fact that we see here that Yaakov has a weakness, that he wants the affirmation, he wants the v- validation from Lavan, and he's, he gets angry because he's frustrated with the fact that Lavan will never give him credit for anything. That's certainly true. But leaving that aside just for a second, let's just look at the speech that Yaakov gives in his moment of uh, protesting on his own behalf. He says... Uh, he says, This is verse 38. This is 20 years I've been with you. Not once did your animals um, lose their young, meaning all of the delivered uh, young of the animals were delivered healthy. I never ate any of the animals. I never brought you a torn animal, meaning if an animal were sick or died, was attacked by another wild animal, I would always take financial responsibility for it. Whether it was day or night, even though normally nighttime is uh, maybe different than, uh, than daytime, the, I, I paid for everything. I was working day when the sun was beating on me and in the night it was freezing. And I never slept. 20 years I was in your house. I worked for you for 20 years uh, for 14 years for your two daughters, and six years to accumulate the sheep. That was his payment. And you changed my reward. You changed the deal 10 times. If not for the fact that God was with me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. Okay? So the point is that Yaakov, again, is focusing on the effort that he invested in this work in building up the estate of Lavan. And what does Lavan say? Fayan Lavan, benotai. You know what? These daughters are my daughters. Vabanim banai, the children are mine. Vatonzoni, the sheep are mine. Everything here is mine. What am I going to do to my own children and grandchildren? I'm not going to hurt them. I'm just going to let you go. So let's make a covenant that we won't hurt each other. So in the end, all of Yaakov's words fall on deaf ears. Lavan still believes whatever I have is mine. I'm entitled to it. It's what fate has decreed that I have. And you've taken it. You've taken it from me. He doesn't recognize that the hard work of Yaakov has legitimately earned him anything. And therefore, everything that Yaakov has is what Lavan has given him. Just like everything Lavan has is what the gods have given him, not what somebody else has worked for or accomplished or achieved. And then in the end, it goes so far as even though Yaakov is the one who asks his, and I always thought this was funny, Yaakov asks his brethren, meaning his, the people with him, to gather stones and they make a pile of stones where they're going to make their covenant with each other. And, yeah, and later on, what does Lavan say? Lavan says that uh, when Lavan describes these rocks, even though it was Yaakov and his men that gathered the rocks, Lavan says, he describes it as own. He says, this matseva and this gal, this pile of rocks and this stone that I have set up between us. He, he takes credit for it, okay, even though he himself didn't do it. But the point is that Yaakov's life, Yaakov's whole approach to the blessing of Hashem is as a result of the work and the ingenuity, the intelligence and the fortitude and effort of human being. Whereas Lavan sees everything as a matter of being given, not what's earned, not what's accomplished, not avodah, not what is produced from hard work, but what is given or received. And therefore, his, this informs his relationship with his, how he perceives his own success, that he sees it as coming from 
uh, magical forces and not being correlated with the use of intelligent, uh, an intelligent and a disciplined approach to uh, effective work. And uh, it also comes with the way that he uh, presents his relationship to others. He doesn't allow them to feel that they've earned anything. He doesn't allow them to feel that they've merited anything. It keeps him in control because he sees that just as he is the recipient of certain favors from powers beyond his control, so too Yaakov is the recipient of, pa- of favors from him. And there's no correspondence necessarily between the efforts or the actions of Yaakov and what's gone on. It just happens to be that Yaakov brought good luck, so I wanted to keep you around, so I was willing to make a deal with you, but in the end, you're taking all of my stuff. So therefore, I don't, so maybe it wasn't such a good deal for me to keep you around. In other words, yeah, Lavan just sees it as a matter of circumstances, that Yaakov brought good luck, so he wanted to keep him around. Yaakov is always referring back to his effort and his work. Lavan is never willing to acknowledge that that's really uh, the cause of the success that he has been able to uh, see with the, uh, you know, with Yaakov as an employee. So I, I think that this is really a, a, one of the themes of the parasha that to me is very significant. And, uh, and with each, with the passage of the years, as I review this parasha, I'm more and more convinced that it's one of the, one of the critical elements that distinguishes the Jewish approach to Baruch from the Gentile or the idolatrous uh, view of Baruch and that Yaakov really exhibits that more than anyone. And that part of the reason why we learn about these principles and these ideas through Yaakov is because this has to be at the foundation of any Jewish nation that is founded. Um, that since Yaakov is going to be the founder of Am Yisrael, basically, he's going to be the father of the 12 tribes that create the nation of Israel. So at the foundation of any nation that's going to live in, in, in a land that is going to be able to thrive and have a successful economy, successful society, um, they're going to have to understand a successful political structure and, and all of that. They're going to have to understand that Hashem's Bacha manifests itself through the application of human intelligence to understanding the order of creation that Hashem has uh, put in place and utilizing the tools that God has given them to bring the Bacha forth. That's how it's going to work. It's not going to, be, it's not going to happen by passive waiting for magical things to occur. And that's why we see this in Yaakov in particular. Um, and in the resistance of Lavan to this idea, we get to see what the idolatrous view of, um, of success is and the idolatrous view of blessing is and how we need to distinguish our understanding of Bacha from that understanding of Bacha. I think this is a key point in the parasha, something we're thinking about and applying to our own lives as well. I want to thank everyone for joining. Um, Bezrat Hashem I'll see you next week as 